Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to a special holiday-themed edition of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening rounds of yuletide terror about Christmas calamities and holiday horrors. I'm Otis Gyrie host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its seventh season. My show is available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. And tonight, I'll once again be filling in as host on behalf of my very good friend, Steve Taylor. And I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring life to the frightening fiction of Michael Page and Jeffrey Ebright, our voice talent Steve Gray and Jesse Cornett, with help from Jeff Clement, Brendan Hurlbert, and Todd Farrell. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our Theater of the Minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Michael Page and is performed by Steve Gray. In it, we'll retreat to a cabin in the remote backwoods of Alaska, where Christmas time should be a time for peace and tranquility, sleeping in and bonding with your family. 
But one man is about to learn the hard way that even if Santa Claus may be mythical, there are plenty of other things that come crawling out for the holidays. And they're not hungry for cookies and milk. <laughs> yeah, without further ado, I present to you, it wasn't reindeer. Christ, I muttered to myself as the first flakes of snow started to fall. They gathered in fuzzy clumps over the windshield before my wipers cleared them away. I'd been waiting for 15, no, 20 minutes now, in my sister's driveway. Had I chosen to wait inside with her, I'd have been dead by now thanks to her two gray cats. Cute little devils, but murdered in my sinuses. Puffy eyes and clogged up throat, that's just what I needed. Every Christmas, our family made the annual trip to my grandparents' cabin, tucked away in the woods of Hope, Alaska, and I'd hoped to beat the heavy snowfall that was forecasted. Since my sister's license was suspended from a DUI, here I was, a hostage to time, with my finger tapping anxiously on the steering wheel. When my mother had asked me to be the one to grab my sister, I had honestly dreaded it from the start. It wasn't that we hated one another, we just weren't as close anymore. After decades of constant arguments and bitter disagreements, we became distant and our relationship fizzled. Yes, we were siblings, but it felt more accurate to call us the residue of what siblings once were. Finally, like the gates of Valhalla, her front door opened and out she came. Her hair was forest green. The last time I'd seen her, it had been white. The time before that, it was violet. Got everything? I asked as she clambered her way into the passenger seat. Hmm, she responded as she adjusted her glasses and stuffed a few bags in the back seat. And just like that, we were off. Hope was about a 30-minute drive, and it didn't take long for the awkward silence to inflate between us. It didn't help that the radio didn't work in my car, and that the broken auxiliary port made your music sound like it was having a seizure. By the time we reached the turnoff for Hope Highway, the road was turning into a thick white sheet. Thankfully, on Christmas Eve night, the long stretch to Hope's small community was quick and vacant. The cabin was tucked away in a fortress of trees five miles off the main road. As I made the turn, my sister cracked the window, pulled out a blunt, and lit it with her lighter. Wanna hit? She asked. Snow crunched beneath us. Not while I'm driving. It's a straight path. We're practically there already. She took a drag and blew it out the window. I just want to focus on this, all right? She huffed and pushed up her glasses. If you're that worried, maybe slow down a bit then. There was the jab. A piece of bait to lure me into another fight. But I wasn't going to bite. Not this time. She could live with us getting there faster. The drive was almost over, and soon I'd be in a warm living room with my feet up, a spiked eggnog in my hand, and Bobby Helms' jingle bell rock in the air. I could already hear Uncle Jed spouting off one of his crude jokes. Why does Santa Claus have such a big... Dude! My sister shrieked, jabbing a finger in my side and whipping my mind back to the windshield. The car had just finished winding around the thick trail. The large body of a reindeer stood in our path. Eyes wide open and blank, it didn't move as the high beams found it. Snapped into a panic, I twisted the wheels in a desperate swerve. The car veered greasily to one side in a fine spray of slosh. 
The reindeer, also known as a caribou, remained still, even as the bumper soared inches from its nose. We came to a crunching halt off the main path. Jesus, I sighed with blessed relief. Did we hit it? No, my sister said, leaning out the window to check while exhaling another plume of smoke. I wound the steering wheel back around and pressed on the gas. The wheels shrilled in place, kicking up globs of sleet but not moving an inch. Perfect, I moaned and unfolded myself from the back seat to check it out. The two front tires were caked in black slush and practically swallowed in a mound of snow. I kicked at it, trying to clear off the icy debris from the treads and beneath the wheel well. When that tired me out, I resorted to scraping it off with my fingers. Screw off, Prancer, I heard my sister call toward the dark silhouette of the reindeer, its antlers like gnarled fingers reaching for the treetops. Then she made sort of a startled yip, followed by a what the fuck? I looked up from the scrim of snow. The reindeer was now standing tall on both of its hind legs. It looked strange, like a silly caricature you'd see in a kid's book. But out there, in the silence of the woods, it was a creepy image. The way its vague shape stood on just two legs held an almost human-like balance. For whatever reason, I realized then, it didn't have a tail. Its muscular neck craned to the side and it let out an ululating scream. A miserable squeal of metal grinding against metal. My legs were ice sculptures, cementing me to the spot as the shriek quieted to a succession of wet grunts. The reindeer dropped down to its original posture and stomped heavily. Puffs of white vapor and strings of snot vented from its nostrils. I was no hunter, but it didn't take a lot to tell when a pissed off animal was about to charge. I leaped for the driver's seat, pulled the door open, and slammed it shut just as the muffled thud of hooves reached me. Antlers scraped the door as its large body practically flew over the patch I had just been standing in. Fast. Very fast. My sister screamed as the large bulk of its frame wound back around and charged again, this time shattering the headlights and submerging us in darkness. Just go already, my sister hollered in my ear. I'm trying, goddammit, I hissed. The wheels continued to spin helplessly. We were trapped. The creature charged again, this time nailing the window. A cobweb of cracks bloomed near my sister's head. I searched for anything, literally anything that I could use as a weapon. I was never really a gun enthusiast, but at that moment I'd have shaved my head and joined the secular monks if it meant having a Glock in my hand right then and there. After rattling the car once more, the reindeer finally appeared to lose interest and disappeared amidst the cluster of trees. Granted some time to breathe and think, we phoned our dad and told him about the situation. He was going to come down with his pickup and get us unstuck out of this mess. I looked over at my sister who was taking long and steady breaths between her fingers. Are you alright? I asked. What do you think? She grumbled. I told you to slow down. Another jab, and this time I wasn't going to have it. You want to be useful? I yelled. Get out there and push. No? Then shut the hell up. I don't need it right now. She said nothing else, and neither did I returning once again to the pocket of silence that our relationship succumbed to. The sooner Dad's headlights peaked in the distance, the better. Suddenly, she rolled the window down. What are you doing? I asked. Shh. She pursed her lips. Just listen. Humoring her, I waited, and sure enough, the sound reached me too. 
the quiet voice of a little girl coming from outside. Somebody, it whimpered. I'm lost. Please help me. I'm lost. My sister unlocked the door and motioned to it. I grabbed her wrist. What are you doing? She snapped. There's someone out there. Just wait a second. It's weird, isn't it? The voice continued to whine, choking between sobs and pleading for someone, anyone, to help her. I didn't like the way it sounded. The same lasting drawl between words. The same weeping sounds. Like someone was hitting repeat on a speaker. Something wasn't right, and my instincts were hoisting red flags left and right. Then my sister looked at me, and her expression warped into shock. She flung back, pinning both her shoulders against the interior. Things that sounded like words bubbled up and didn't quite make it out of her throat. I turned and saw what was looking at me. It had the face of a man, surrounded by the mottled fur of a caribou's body. The skin was a mummified brown color wound tightly around its long, skull-like old crinkled leather. Snowflakes landed upon its wide, expressionless eyes and melted into the dark membranes of its pupils. It circled the car, bobbing its antlers and fogging up the windows as it peered inside. My heart shook the walls of my throat. I locked eyes with my sister, unable to say anything behind the sheer disbelief. I should have grabbed my phone, snapped a photo, recorded a video, anything, but my thoughts were jangled. It then let out that same horrible scream, but I didn't see its tight, contorted lips open. The sound was coming from its neck. Small, fleshy orifices, flapping open like mouths, were converting the high-pitched shrill into the mimicking cry of a little girl. Help me. I'm lost. Help me. Headlights glazed the area. My father's pickup came into view, paving its way down the path. The reindeer, or whatever the fuck it was, ran off, vanishing once again into the snow-covered thicket. Nobody believed us. Why would they? If anybody had told me that story, I would have assumed they were hopped up on some crazy psychedelic. But the reality of what I saw was cold, and it's still something to this day can't fully swallow. Instead of sleeping that night, my sister and I did some research that led us to the myth of skinwalkers. Beings of some sort, capable of mimicking voices and disguising themselves as animals to lure people into the woods. After reading other accounts, there wasn't a doubt in my mind what we'd witnessed out there. Every so often that night, I'd stare out the window and eye the yard, wondering if I'd see that leathery face watching from the tree line. Neither I nor my sister ever made that trip again, much to the frustration of my family. But there was a silver lining. She and I have never been closer. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed It Wasn't Reindeer, as written by Michael Page and performed by Steve Gray. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Jeffrey Ebright and performed by a full cast starring Jesse Cornett as narrator with assistance from Jeff Clement, Todd Farrell, and Brendan Hurlburt. In it, we'll hear an altogether different take on St. Nick and his legendary helpers and find out exactly what happens when you make the naughty list. Now, without further ado, I present to you Old Man Winter. Thank you for coming, Doctor. I honestly didn't think the renowned psychoanalyst Jeffrey Gilland would see me. Then again, it isn't every day you are handed the opportunity to interview an insane colleague. And I am your golden ticket to a more profound reputation. Aren't I? Please, you don't need that arched brow to impress me. I've spent years trading theory and thesis with you, Jeffrey. Until you published your paper on paranoid delusionals, I thought I was the only one making any progress in schizophrenic research. But I see my banter is falling under speculative regard. Very well. Let's begin with the reaffirmation of patient ID. My name is Professor Randall H. Courtney. I maintain doctorates in the fields of psychology, psychiatry, psychobiology, parapsychology, criminology, and religious mythology. The latter, a particular passion of mine. Until recent events, I was the head of Western University Psychology Department and special consultant to both Western Community Hospital and the state-funded Pleasant Glen Home for the Criminally Insane. 
specializing in sociopathic and schizophrenic cases. I am 57 years of age. Moderately healthy. And unfortunately close to the precipice of insanity. Of course, you wouldn't be here if I were not. To the heart of the matter, as you would tell me when I began a long-winded diatribe, here, then, are the circumstances which led you here. It all began two weeks ago. I had read the case study of the holiday hacker, William James Morton, by Dr. Lansing in Athens. His paper discussed the complete personality and symptomatic juxtaposition of Morton. By all accounts, William James Morton was a classic case of a violent sociopath. He murdered a documented 156 women and children from 1993 to 2013. Undeniably, Morton was the most prolific serial killer ever substantiated in his claims. Unlike our tail-chasing study of Henry Lee Lucas, eh? As the typical profile of a serial murderer, Morton was a white male in his late thirties. Middle-income class, with a social magnetism that allowed him to make friends easily. Coupled with an unusually high IQ, Morton was well-liked by colleagues and friends who, of course, never suspected his nocturnal activities. Morton worked for the Indiana Public Utilities Commission as a meter reader. This gave him unlimited accessibility into his victims' homes, to which he would cleverly observe several potential targets for two to three weeks prior to making his move. All of Morton's victims were killed during holidays, most notably Christmas and Easter. As you know, Dr. Lansing asserts Morton killed on holidays because his parents did not celebrate any of the accepted Christian holidays, and that either the indifference or non-participation of social interactions with friends and family created Morton's behavior. Unfortunately, Lansing never appropriately explored the aspect of his ritual abuse by his father what the sexual recriminations his mother heaped upon him. And let us not forget his classic dissociation with morality and accepted social behavior. I see you have no taste for debate tonight. Very well. Morton ritualistically entered the household of families wherein the father worked a third or graveyard shift between the hours of 1 to 4 a.m. and proceeded to slit the throats of his victims. From oldest to youngest, his signature was the destruction of a major holiday tradition, stripping a Christmas tree of ornaments,
tearing up Easter baskets, shredding Valentine's Day cards, vandalizing the Thanksgiving centerpiece, etc. But you've already read Dr. Lansing's case study, eh, Jeffrey? Of course you have. You know, on the night of December 24th, 1993, the Jeffersonville police responded to a 911 call from a half-dead Iris Dennison. By the time they reported on scene, all three children, aged three to seven, were found dead in their bedrooms, as was Mrs. Dennison, still clutching the bedroom phone. Amongst the carnage and destruction, they found the five-foot, ten-inch meter reader balled up in the corner of the living room, covered in his own bodily fluids and the blood of his victims. The police report concluded with Morton's overwhelming confession and sorrow. What followed was to be the largest admission of serial murder ever told. As a matter of fact, when they found Morton's infamous tome of the season, the grisly journal of his slayings. Jesus Christ. Have you read this shit? I wager Morton told them where to find that damnable book. For some unknown reason, this brutal, remorseless killing machine was now raving like a paranoid schizophrenic in a highly manic, delusional state. Morton was now begging to be locked away for his crimes. This complete change portends an emotional 180-degree spin on all our known beliefs of mental illness. Curious? Don't you agree, Dr. Gilland? <clears throat> I see you're still not impressed. Very well. Let us move to the meat of the meal. The night of March 15th, the night Lansing and Morton died before my eyes. I must, however, warn you in good conscience, this tale will no doubt test the limits of your psyche. So I must ask you to suspend your disbelief until the tale is told. I cannot guarantee you will ever sleep soundly again, but... You will know the unbelievable truth which has stolen my sanity and placed me here under guarded supervision. Before that fateful day, I had thoroughly studied Morton's tome with avid interest. As a long-range researcher, Morton's Tome of the Season provided an invaluable resource, the likes of which had never been seen before, nor, I must suppose, will ever be seen again. Can you imagine a reference book for homicidal sociopaths written by a homicidal sociopath? This was no notebook of ranting against the machine of society. 
nor was it an incoherent catalogue of instability. With an above-average IQ, Morton meticulously entered all thoughts, actions, and variables of each murder, down to any minute smell, taste, and touch he experienced. His view was frighteningly clinical. Even his penmanship looked antiseptic, not obsessive. Words cannot express the terror of his analysis or the sheer horror of Morton's accurate observations on the death of his victims. Honestly, Morton's brilliance in notation and observation would shame the efforts of our most esteemed research colleagues. This was also the opinion expressed by Dr. Lansing. That is why he allowed me to study the tome as a precursor to our meeting, Morton. And I believe the sheer immensity of the task at hand brought me into the fray. Perhaps it was the simple fact that Lansing needed an intellectual equal to back up his claims and save his reputation from the assertions he was about to make. Whatever the case, I should have politely denied him and continued my life in the blessed ignorance which will never again be mine. Here, then, are the events of March 15th. Dr. Lansing and I arrived at Pleasant Glen just before 6 p.m., we were both in good spirits anxious about our first in-depth interview with the man the media had dubbed the Holiday Hacker. We had discussed the tome during the two-hour ride from the airport and had formulated a strategy for interrogation of William James Morton. However, the strategy disintegrated once we occupied the room with this killer. Morton was escorted into a room no bigger than the average living room, bound in a formidable straitjacket. His eyes were glassy, wide, darting, the epitome of a paranoid schizophrenic. He moved with shaky uncertainty and, if not for the armed guard, would have certainly fallen into the table instead of being seated at it. Lansing put on his psychiatrist hat and went to work. Good evening, William. My name is Dr. Lansing, and this is Dr. Courtney. We've come to ask you a few questions. Would you mind? To this, Morton giggled and spat. <laughs> Your dime. Fire away. We read your book, William. Lansing continued. Why did you write it? For posterity, head shrinker. It don't make no difference. Nothing does. <laughs> He began giggling like a schoolboy with a secret. 
What do you mean by that? I piped in. I feel sorry for you assholes, I really do. Morton said, rocking gently in his chair. I'm gonna pay for what I did, but you... You don't have a clue what's gonna happen. Maybe if you explained it to myself and Dr. Courtney, we might be able to... Save me? Morton cut in. <laughs> oh, I don't think so, Headshrinker. Can't you smell the doom? Taste the fear? Is it because of all the people you've murdered? I asked. A sneer of righteousness crossed his lips. No. Not because of all the people I killed. Would you mind explaining what you mean? Said Dr. Lansing. You won't believe a word of it, but that don't matter. It's gonna happen whether you believe me or not, but I ain't saying nothing till you turn out those recorders. Agreed. We heeded his request and turned off our recorders. He simply smiled at the two of us, and his eyes seemed to clear, and his demeanor altered. The armed guard behind Morton leaned against the wall as if holding it up, oblivious to the conversation. It was the last expedition I underwent, said Morton. The Denison family experiment. I am still sorry I did not have the time to record my observations. I found myself utterly without words as I listened to this madman speak without the previous trace of his drawl. His new verbal diction was measured, reflective, almost nonplussed. It was then an answer dawned on me for his abrupt and distinctive attitude alteration. The mystery of his 180-degree turn could be logically and anticlimactically explained. I jotted D-I-D into my notebook and sighed in profound disappointment to such an obvious solution which the psychiatric community used to call multiple personality disorder. So it was one of the denizens you regret killing? Asked Lansing, as if he didn't notice the change. Not for a moment. Morton's eyes sparkled. Apparently you forgot to read your paper on my aberrant behavior. <clears throat> Lansing shuffled uncomfortably in his chair without response. I quickly jumped into the fray. What caused your radical behavioral change? Any idiot with half the imagination can fake paranoia, get more attention, and stricter supervision by his captors. His voice was almost clinical in its approach. A sociopath is simply locked into a cell, fed and watered as required by law, and forgotten. I cannot, will not, be casually erased from existence. So you're perpetrating this ruse for attention? Scowled Dr. Lansing. For witnesses. Why would you need witnesses? I interjected. Can Santa Claus come into town? 
Morton sang in a sickly sweet child's voice. I don't understand, I said. I killed the jolly fat man. He said flatly. <laughs> what? Lansing and I gasped in chorus. I butchered Chris Kringle. Old man winner, Saint Nick, whatever you want to call it. What do you mean by it? I asked. Let me put it this way. Morton began. I could see his calm, controlled demeanor beginning to crumble like a glass house from a stone's throw. I have killed a lot of people. I know what that is. In all of my research, I have never seen anything like it. Well, I might be a sociopath, but I am not insane. I know the direct effect of all my actions and am totally aware of every child and mother I put in the ground. But I will not be stalked by a figment of ceremonial imagination. When it comes for me, I want others to tell the tale. I will not be dismissed as some raving lunatic and have my observations shelved as another madman's delusion. Enlighten us. Lansing asked with a certain smugness. Morton leaned forward on the table, which caused the guard to lazily mutter. Watch yourself, Morton. I'm only a step away from busting your ass. Oh, I'm sure you are. Morton dismissed the man. It was Christmas Eve, and I had just finished my experimentation on the children. By the way, did you know you can open a child's jugular vein when they're sleeping and... They will continue sleeping into death, cradled in the warmth of their pooling blood. That is, unless you make noise or your instrument is not sharp enough. Interesting. Lansing said clearly, uninterested. Thank you, Doctor. Morton's voice was less than gracious. I believe that was the moment he began to lose interest in Lansing's presence and spoke directly to me. As I was saying, I had just completed my study and was busy leaving my calling card. Defacing the Christmas decorations? I supplied. Yes. He nodded to me. It was during my ceremonial defacing of the tree when I heard a large thump. Like a pot roast hitting the counter from thirty feet. Pot roast? Yes, kind of, kind of a meaty plop. He looked directly in my eyes. I could tell the story was an attempt to reaffirm his tentative grip on what he considered reality. I turned around expecting to find one of my victims in the survival category of willpower over wounding. It's only 10% do, you know. Interesting theory. Lansing offered trying to re-establish his role in the conversation. Could you offer more on this aspect? No. Morton dismissed Lansing and continued. I turned around to find a fat man in a red and white suit. Yes, he was, he was covered in ashes and suit. Yes, he had a big round belly shaking like a bowl full of jelly. All the stereotypes were accurate. Santa Claus? The name escaped my mouth in reserve disbelief. In all his wonder, 
Morton's eyes began shifting to the barred window and back to me. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> the fat abomination started to laugh like life was all hearts and flowers. And all the holidays I never had were in the past and meant to be forgotten. He had the audacity to glorify a celebration that the Christians stole from the pagans and capitalists stole from God himself. So I planted my scalpel in his chubby throat. What? My shock could not be contained. I knifed him, he said with a cool, triumphant smile. And he had the nerve to spit out through the blood. <laughs> You're being naughty. He pulled the scalpel out and picked me up off his feet and said, Santa doesn't like naughty little boys and girls. That tub of lard tossed me across the room like a rag doll. I remained silent. I had nothing to say to this unbelievable tale. You probably guessed that irritated me. He tried to shrug off the rest of the story, but it flowed from his lips like bitter wine. The first thing that came to hand was the Christmas tree stand, which lay discarded among the remnants of light strands and broken bulbs. I used the stand to split its head open like an overripe melon. By the time I was finished, its head was a bloody bowl of red oatmeal. But it tried to get up. Can you imagine my surprise and frustration? No, I can't. I responded. Well, this was no experience a clinical man like myself was prepared to anticipate. I improvised, knocked it to the floor, severed its head from its body and got myself together to leave. Unfortunately, Santa had wasted valuable escape time. I was trapped. My mind tried to figure out what to do next. That's when I heard a bloody gurgle behind me. Santa was on his feet, wagging a finger at me. He stopped for a moment to regain his composure. And do you know what that bloated corpse said? What? Droned Lansing. I'll be back, you bad little boy and then popped up the chimney and jingled off into the night. And this is your explanation for your abrupt change in behavior? Lansing scoffed. I can smell fish stories from miles away. Do you truly think I will report this hogwash? I don't care what you do, you academic leech. Morton growled. Why didn't the police see Santa fleeing the scene? Wouldn't they have been tipped off by Rudolph's nose lighting the way? Lansing taunted. Morton turned to me, his eyes intense and focused. I just needed a fellow colleague to listen and to know. I am surprised I have not been assassinated by now. 
I have spent too many nights wondering when my end will come. Now it doesn't matter if it comes from me. The story has been told. That is all. Indeed, sniffed Lansing. I've never heard such... Lansing trailed off, cocking his head like a collie to a dog whistle. Do you hear bells? At this point, Jeffrey... Reality crumbled. It was almost as if the terror was waiting for its cue to take the stage. The sweet sound of bells grew louder and louder as a red light from outside the window drew closer. Oh, shit, it found me! It seemed Morton's persona switched again and struggled within his bonds. Let me out of this jacket, goddammit! The wall of the interview room exploded noiselessly into the dark night, collapsing as if it were hit with a great silent force from inside the room. The dust swirled about the gaping maw as three of the four of us stood frozen in place. It found me! Morton shrieked as he pushed off his chair and tried to make himself small behind the interview table. The guard broke from deep lethargy and pulled his gun. Freeze, you son of a bitch! He pointed the shaking weapon toward the hole in the wall. From a sleek, red, levitating sleigh, two smallish men, roughly three feet tall, with pointed shoes and ears to match, grinned maniacally and quickly disembarked. The obscene jingling of their droopy conical hats mocked the viciousness of their body language. They stood like doormen at the sides of the missing wall, leering wildly at the bewildered foursome. Which one? Called one of the little men in a shrill soprano. We all held fast in pure terror as it stepped through the hole. It wore the suit of Santa and bounded from the sleigh with a jolly stride. All the myths were true except for Santa's head. It was more an assembly of leftover parts from a slaughterhouse than a head with a pristine red hat. It looked like roadkill which had boiled on the unforgiving black asphalt for days. Jagged bone protruded from shredded pulpy muscle as the dark stained beard revealed a ruptured orifice which could only be the mouth. It rasped in a voice of sandpaper and pain which pierced my very soul. It pointed a gloved finger at the hiding serial killer. The men in green, elves, I would presume, advanced on Morton glaring. 
Am I invisible? The guard barked, drawing back the hammer on his forty caliber pistol. Now back the fuck up! I won't say it again! Faster than the mind could comprehend, one of the elves was upon him. Eyes wide with disbelief, the guard watched as the little man tore into his flesh like a rabid wolverine. The guard, I believe Carl was his name, found himself caught in the middle of an eruption of blood. His blood. Carl had the horrifying honor of watching himself being autopsied while still alive. His last memory was of his entrails sliding from his chest cavity and slapping the floor. He quickly collapsed to the gray-flecked institutional tile, cocked gun still in hand. Finally, Lansing reacted. He vomited, spewing God's name between each hasty exit of the day's meal. The two elves pounced on Morton, hauling him to his feet amidst his tearful protests. <laughs> no, please, no. The elves clamped around his bound arms like a metal vice grip. This only increased Morton's shrinking. And what, you may ask, was I doing during all this? Nothing. No, that is not true. I was trying to escape to the part of the mind we psychologists claim comatose patients go when severely traumatized by life. My little place must have been closed for repairs for I was forced to witness the hideous events that continued before my previously agnostic eyes. Morton continued sobbing and rocked in his straitjacket. Lansing continued vomiting and taking the Lord's name in vain, and I became a statue as the corrupted thing in the red suit advanced upon his elf-bookended victim. The thing's head contorted in an expression which most likely was a smile amongst the shredded muscles of its face. It lifted Morton's tear-stained face with a gloved finger as if examining a slave soon to be auctioned. No, please, no, I'll be a good boy. Morton pleaded to mutilated ears. The elves giggled, knowingly. As if it were not surrealistic enough, Lansing came under control and tried asserting himself as the voice of reason. Can you imagine, Jeffrey? The old fool tried to rationalize with mythical characters in our unfathomable situation. I could smell death upon him even before he managed to spew his initial salvo of psychobabble. The elves released the whimpering Morton and focused on Dr. Lansing. Their movements would have shamed the best bodyguard or secret service agent as they swarmed Lansing. This... Situation has not become unsalvageable. 
Perhaps we can avoid any further unpleasantness if we can allow ourselves a moment of reflection. One of the elves came face to face with Lansing, listening to his words with a contemplative face. The first elf nodded agreeably and said in that squeaky soprano, with the stealth of shadows, the second elf neatly penetrated Lansing's back with a petite, clawed hand. The intrusion must have granted Lansing a form of anesthetic shock, for his face was less comprised of pain than surprise. Whatever the case, Lansing fell to his knees immediately as I watched the demonic second elf playing tug of war with Lansing's spinal column, while the first elf continued to lock his gaze onto Lansing as if mimicking the suffering from the psychologist's eyes. The tug of war was being lost until the second elf put a foot on the doctor's back and wrapped its fist around the exposed section of his spine. Effort redoubled. Lansing's spine popped loudly, then slid from his body with a wet sucking sound. The little monsters briefly considered Lansing's wide-eyed death mask, cackled gleefully, and went back to their original target. Ignoring my useless presence. Maybe it was the dismissal of me as harmless entity that awakened me. Vanity has always been a great motivator in our profession. It was as if the magical inner button had been switched off for my senses returned. I was wrapped in raging anger for the first time in my life, and it was my assertion that these abominations of nature needed to be brought to justice. At least, I prefer to think my motives were purely altruistic instead of triggered through selfish preservation. My first thought was of my need for a weapon. I then remembered the guard's unfired gun. I mustered my courage and walked slowly toward Carl's mutilated body and my only salvation. They continued to ignore <laughs> me, preferring to get no, please, the no. pleading Morton under control. I retrieved the heavy weapon without incident. Until that day, the thought of firing a weapon repulsed me. Yet I was beyond the point of moral justification. My clinical world was at an end, and I was determined to survive the brave new world into which I had been so unceremoniously thrust. The unreality that was the three interlopers blanketed the sobbing Morton. Naughty, repeated the aberrant Santa as his mitten-clothed hands reached for the pristine red hat on its mutilated head. Naughty, I quietly mumbled. Actually, I believe I giggled it as I said it. 
It was that giggle that alerted the elves. Both of the little green monsters spun on their heels and faced me like a western showdown. I did not mix hyperbole. I simply pulled the trigger. The gun roared, catching one of the elves in its slender neck. In fact, the 40 caliber bullet nearly severed the elf's head. It sputtered some ancient gibberish and fell to the ground, twitching. Unfortunately, the remaining elf was quickly upon me, rather, upon my leg. It lashed out with its savage claws, removing my patella with near-surgical precision as if it were an old-fashioned bottle cap. Pain exploded across my being, yet this was not the time to recognize my shortcomings. I fell backwards and struck the unforgiving institution floor. I scarcely had the opportunity to blink before the little creature was upon my chest set to strike the killing It shrieked, raising a gore-soaked talon. <laughs> yes, I smiled. I almost experienced a moment of pity for the little elf as it felt the gun barrel dig into its crotch. Almost. At close range, the bullet shredded through the elf. throwing its live body across the room. Believe me when I say this, Geoffrey. If I were you, I would be wearing the same disbelieving expression. Sometimes in the silence of night, I myself have cause to doubt all that occurred in this antiseptic room at Pleasant Glen. Yet I cannot escape the conclusion in the immortal words of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Here, then, is the most improbable fate of William James Morton. I struggled to my feet, the table a proper crutch to my shattered leg. Though it seemed like an eternity, I had dispatched Santa's helpers in a matter of seconds. I unfortunately did not miss the horror unfolding between Morton and the shredded Santa. Excluding the appearance of its head, the scene played out innocently. The obese dead thing removed the hat. To this, the straight-jacketed Morton bellowed and squirmed like a worm on a hook. Santa calmly placed the hat upon Morton's head and chuckled. Ho, ho, ho! Never had I heard a cry of such torment and terror as I heard that day, nor do I ever wish to hear it again. My blood ran cold as the holiday hacker, bound and helpless, called to a god he never believed in while the aberrant creature offered a grotesque 
gurgling chuckle. I raised my weapon, not knowing what I could do against his terrified screams. Kill me! Morton's eyes locked to mine. Kill me before it's too late! I leveled the gun at his head. The corpse Santa made no motion to stop me. Please, please, please! Morton cried. I can feel it! Hurry! I swallowed hard and squeezed the trigger. <laughs> to this day, I do not know if I was too late, or if the bullet would have had any effect had I delivered it sooner. Needless to say, I placed a bullet hole neatly in the middle of Morton's forehead. The bullet hole puckered, diminished, and sealed the flesh of his forehead as the manic terror in Morton's eyes swelled. The metamorphosis had begun. Before my eyes, the smallish frame of William James Morton expanded, along with growing girth. His facial features softened, losing the terrified sociopath and puffy cheeks. His face erupted in white tufts of hair, with the hair upon his head lengthening in a shocking snowy white. His restraints melted into a thick red blouse with matching pants as bare feet became shod in shiny black boots. During this transformation, the thing that was Santa deflated like a balloon slowly, losing air. When it hit the cold floor, Morton rose to his feet. No. It was no longer William James Morton. Ho, ho, ho! It roared, jelly belly and all. As if on cue to this battle cry, the dead elves exploded, showering the room in large cottony flakes. It was at this point my mind decided it had truly seen enough. I fell to the floor and began laughing as I tried to catch a snowflake or two upon my proffered tongue. I wondered to myself how many I could catch before I bled to death. The new Santa looked at me for a moment and patted me on the head. Now you be a good little boy, he offered with a wink, thumbed his nose, and through the blasted portal he rose. Once through the hole in the wall, the crumbled bricks reformed and jumped back into place resealing the room as if the intrusion never happened. My memories pick up in the hospital as an attending doctor told me I would most likely never walk again. I remember my comment being slightly sarcastic. 
but I cannot remember what I said. <laughs> it really does not matter at this point. So, Jeffrey, am I insane? Oh, don't look at me that way. I know. Only an insane person could create such a fantastic world to play a scenario such as this. If only the evidence did not exist to the contrary, eh? The psychiatric community will play it off as an extreme psychotic episode from a man who has worked too closely to his subjects. The local law enforcement unwilling to advertise multiple grisly homicides will be more then happy to agree and quietly close the case. However, before I am escorted back to my padded room, consider this. We as a society look to insane explanations to rationalize those topics which we personally do not wish to breach. Babies coming from a benevolent stork Weather balloons cross the globe as UFOs. The Son of God relieves the weight of personal sin by ritualistic torture and eventual death. In this pantheon, my greatest fear is reserved for a creature that keeps track of our morals, rewarding or punishing us for being nice or naughty. A beast which preys only upon the most innocent of our culture. Children. A being which despite the security alarms and fences is allowed to enter our house and is given unrestricted access to our inner sanctum. We do not question his valor or mission. We simply expect this modern icon to perform in a righteous manner, but I must ask, what if this creature is not here for our mythical amusement? What if, like the old wives' tales of cats who steal children's sleeping breath, old Saint Nick has an ulterior Sinister motive. You know, Jeffrey, the suicide rate for Christmas is staggeringly higher than any other time of the year. Coincidence. Have we in fact unleashed a terror into our normal lives that sustains itself with supernatural malfeasance? Now, more than ever, I remain skeptical. No matter. I believe I shall never leave this place. I have seen too much, and perhaps said too much. 
my advice to you, dear Jeffrey. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. I hope you enjoyed Old Man Winter, as written by Jeffrey E. Bright and performed by Jesse Cornett, with special guests Jeff Clement, Todd Farrell, and Brendan Hurlburt. That just about brings tonight's Feast of Holiday Horrors to a close, and although tonight we've painted a dreadful caricature of the most wonderful time of the year, in all seriousness, I and everyone at the Chilling Tales team would like to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas, a happy holiday season, and a wonderful 2021 to come, and hope the new year brings everyone nothing but the best. Thank you so much for joining us during this busy time of year, and for choosing us to entertain you on these long, dark, cold winter nights. Speaking of the best, (laughs) I'd like to invite you again to check out more narrative nightmares on my program, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever your favorite programs can be found. With seven thrilling seasons to sink your teeth into, with all the tales performed by yours truly, Otis Gyre. And if you drop by and like what I do, please take a moment to leave me a five-star review and a comment, too, and let me know that you heard about me here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to me. I'd also like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and it's been a pleasure as always. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. 
Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>